Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files. With your host, David Axelrod. Before June 28, 2022, few Americans knew of Cassidy Hutchinson, the young former Trump White House staffer. But that all changed that day when she appeared as a surprise star witness at a hastily called televised hearing of the House Select Committee on January 6th to share what she knew about the events leading up to and following the storming of Capitol Hill by a pro-Trump mob. But her own life story is worth hearing and compellingly told in her new book, Enough. I sat down with Cassidy this week to talk about all of it, and here's our conversation. Cassidy Hutchinson, I can't tell you how long I've been waiting for this conversation. Um, <laughs> so it, we had a schedule a few times, and I'm, I'm so glad that we were finally, finally able to do it. Good to see you. You too, Dave, and I've really been looking forward to this and talking to your listeners. So, I appreciated your book. The, when these books are written, and I know because I wrote one myself, the fascination of the media is on the sort of news elements of it. And by news, they mean, well, what did she say about what went on on the inside of the White House? And of course, it's a natural thing, given how you became publicly known. But the thing that to me is so interesting about your book enough is your own story which is sort of a phenomenal and interesting story so i really want to talk about that <laughs> and i want to talk about how you came to that moment in your life where you had all these responsibilities and all of the stuff roaring around you but it begins sort of growing up and you tell a very poignant and powerful story about how you grew up in Pennington, New Jersey. So talk about that. Pennington, New Jersey is a great place to grow up, but it's sort of this tiny little town sandwiched in between New York City, about 50 minutes from New York City and 25 from Philadelphia and outside of Princeton. So it's this tiny little quaint town. I grew up in a working class family. I ended up being the first person in my immediate family to go to college. My mom really ran our household. My biological father had a big landscaping business and then ended up having a tree arborist company. So I was constantly surrounded by what we would refer to as blue collar workers or working class Americans. And that's what both of my extended families primarily did as well. So my world was very different than the world that I live in now. And at the time, I wasn't really aware that there was much different about it. It was the only reality that I really knew. But I think having that background, seeing how like my father, you know, he was a big government skeptic for as long as I can remember, but he always put an emphasis on education. And he, I remember being very young and he told me that education was the way to a better life than what we had and what he was able to provide us. Um, so even 
from a very young age, I knew that there was a better life or I felt that there was a better life. That's what I had been told. Your dad is a, I would say, a central figure in this book, uh, in a way. And the story you tell is a difficult one because he's, he was a, a very bombastic figure, easily provoked. Talk a little, little about him. Despite my strained relationship with my father now, he really was the hardest worker that I had ever known in my life. And that progressed and became more and more, I would say, a little bit more neurotic. As I got a little bit older, my parents inched towards divorce. But I had this keen awareness of how hard he worked, and even though it was different than the labor that I saw myself going into eventually. He was serving our community. At least that's how he had always phrased it to us. And it was essential that he worked hard to be able to take care of our family. You know, he was tough and he was, he had a very difficult personality, but I think all of those things combined. And I look back and reflect on my tenure in the administration and I'm not somebody that's big on psychoanalysis, but I really do think that, I mean, there's so much of my father that helped equip me for being successful in the administration, but more so than most other reasons, I think it's the fact that I was able to deal with difficult personalities. He was a, let's be honest. I mean, and I, and I, you know, what I appreciate about your book is that it is honest about your life. I wrote a memoir myself some years back and it was painful to write because I had issues of my own in my life that was part of that memoir. But to write an honest book, I mean, in a sense, you're assessing yourself Yeah, in that journey and you can't do it without being honest he was abusive to you uh, i mean some of the stories you tell about he gave you a four-wheeler i guess for christmas or something when you were a little girl and then had you go out in kind of dangerous conditions and you wiped out and you got hurt and he was kind of pissed and told you to suck it up and yeah ended up throwing the keys into the snow and telling you to go find them. He said he was taking you hunting and he made you or tried to get you to shoot a, a turtle. And, I mean, it's just like weird and difficult stuff. I had been so ingrained in, into this particular mindset where I'd never looked at those memories or those events as anything other than what they were. And I had been predispositioned and conditioned to think and believe that my father treated me that way. And my father put me in those situations to make me stronger, to show me that I was self-sufficient. So in many ways, I still view it that way. And again, this, these are stories of my life. At the time, I never viewed it as abusive. I now see things from a different position, and I understand that you know, some of the things I personally believe children should never have to go through. But it was, you know, from a very young age, I had been exposed to that quote-unquote, tough guy mindset and then suck it up and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Things are going to be fine. People have it so much worse, and I'm, I'm doing this because I love you. Um, and in many ways, you know, I, I do think some of that has contributed to, I used to think it was a strength, and in some ways I still do, but my ability to compartmentalize and be able just to get a job done, and that was really a strength in the Trump White House was to be able to turn your emotions off you're there to do a job and you're there to serve the president of the United States. And it doesn't matter what drama or what snake pit you're in that day and who's trying to stab who in the back, as long as you put your head down and do your, do your job. 
you're going to be successful. Yeah, and I I imagine dealing with volcanic abusive personalities might have been useful in the Trump White House as well, but we can get to that. <laughs> but there's one paragraph that caught my eye. It's you said dad fixated so much on Donald Trump, I wish he would pay attention to us like he did to the apprentice. When I told dad this, his dinner fork clamored ac- across his plate and he said Donald Trump was teaching him how to become a better businessman so he did not have to work so much. The other option dad said was that he could stop working altogether. Dad didn't think his family would like suffering, uh, like uh, would like how suffering felt. And since he had worked so hard, he had no idea what it meant to suffer, or we had no idea what it meant to suffer. Um, he was like he, in some ways, uh, he was kind of the center cut Donald Trump supporter. Right. Yeah. They uh Now I think that Donald Trump was on The Apprentice. I don't ever really remember my parents talking about politics, especially when I was younger. Now, I became politically intrigued during the 2012 presidential election, so I remember beginning personally to talk to my parents about politics then. I had heard my parents talk a little bit about George Bush after 9-11, but I had no concept of political awareness. They never really talked about politics. To my best knowledge, neither of them had ever voted before 2016. I know for a fact, at least my mother and I call him my chosen father in the book, but my mom's partner. Um, but yeah, my, again, my, my father was a small business owner and I don't know exactly, I haven't had the conversation with him. I don't know exactly what it was that initially drew him to Donald Trump watching The Apprentice. I assume it's pretty cut and dry that he saw that, or he felt that Donald Trump was a fantastic businessman my father always wanted to get rich. He always wanted the next best thing for his business or in his family and to try to always learn new ways about marketing and about building his own business and building his own quote-unquote empire. Yeah, I look back now and even through middle school and high school, there are many elements of my father's personality that I now see make up the bulk of Trump's base. The people who had never voted before, people who saw something in Donald Trump and he felt that they were actually that he was at, that Donald Trump was actually there to represent them, and it's sort of is playing on, in my view at least, playing on the fear of these people that he is the best and the only option, but also that he's built this brilliant business and he can rebuild America just as brilliantly, when it's really a, an entire facade and act that Donald Trump has put on. You know, I think about my father specifically, and it's not nothing against him, but I don't think he really has a concept of what the Republican Party platform once was and what Donald Trump has completely morphed it into. He views Donald Trump as the only person that can help him in this country as a blue-collar American or as a working-class American. And this uh, sort of anti-government notion that he had, which I guess flows from what regulations of small businesses, what is it that turned him so dark on government? I'm not exactly sure. I remember being young and we'd always go for rides in his pickup truck. And every time we would pass a police officer, he would say, people with government badges aren't French. I'm not entirely sure where the animosity towards the government is rooted. I assume a lot of it has just come from misinformation and lack of awareness of what the government actually is there to do and to serve. And I think you know, when I look at the Trump movement, and I think about my journey through 
Trump world and to get to where I am now, but also with my earlier years and thinking about how my parents grew up, I see there's a lot of parallels I can draw between the Trump base and the people that I grew up surrounded by. You mentioned that you got interested in politics in 2012, but you also write about a trip that you took to Washington with your aunt and uncle and how transfixed you were by the town. Tell me about that. And what, what is it that inspired you when you were a little girl and you, you went to D.C.? After 9-11, I remember feeling this surge of national pride, as did many Americans. My parents never hid what happened that day for me. I attribute a lot of my early patriotism, but also desire to serve in the government or have a career in public service to my uncle Joe, who was a very formative figure both in my early years mm-hmm. and in my adulthood. My uncle Joe was in the Indiana National Guard and was deployed during after 9-11 to Afghanistan. So when he came back from the war, he and my aunt Steph, my mom's sister, moved to Washington, D.C. And I've spent a lot of, especially writing the book, a lot of time thinking about that first trip to D.C., but I remember it so clearly. And we went onto the balcony and I saw the skyline. It was almost like this early sense of a premonition that I belonged there. Like I just remember feeling so at home in D.C. I remember looking at the monuments from afar and just thinking the skyline was beautiful. But then as we went into D.C. and we we did the walk on the National Mall, and I just remember feeling so overwhelmed and overpowered with just the sense of national pride and that I wanted to work there and that I I felt that I belonged there. And it was really the only place, and I was, again, I was still young, but that I felt that I really belonged and wanted to be part of. So I think that was my earliest inclination. Like, okay, my my goal was to get to Washington, D.C., but the 2012 presidential election is sort of when that, trajectory began to solidify for me. When I was nine, I had a cousin who lived in Washington who had worked for John F. Kennedy, and she invited me and my family down for the inauguration of President Johnson. And while we were there, she had a friend who was the administrative assistant to a senator, Abe Ribicoff from Connecticut, and she took me over to meet him. And I stood in his office, and he said, you know, maybe someday you can work here. Oh, I can take goosebumps. I said, that that would be the greatest thing ever. So when I read your writing, it sort of sent me back to my own experience because those things really do yeah. make a lasting impression. Yeah, 2012. I remember that election. I was involved in that election. <laughs> so tell me why that inspired you. That was my first year taking uh, advanced U.S. history classes. I had taken history classes before, obviously, throughout my youth. But that year, I loved my teacher, but we had been assigned for class to watch the first presidential debate. And I remember I was in the basement of the house that we lived in at the time, and I was watching the debate. My mom and my aunt, Steph, were down there too, but they were off doing something else. Uh, I probably playing Farmville or something. And... uh, I was just completely transfixed with it. And I, the assignment was just to write like a little short essay about the basic platforms and what happened in the debate. And I went to school the next day and I asked if I could sort of turn it into this case study about the 2012 presidential election. And I, I still have the binder that I put together. But yeah, I had this binder primarily about Mitt Romney and I just was transfixed with learning as much as I could about the Republican Party platform. And But a lot of my friends at school supported, I remember, 
but Barack Obama at the time. So I wasn't yeah. hyper political. This is really the first time that I had been exposed to party platforms. And I can't really chalk up my support for Mitt Romney other than I just felt that I agreed with his basic platforms. And I've I've been asked this question so many times and I try to crawl back into my psyche as a 14-year-old. So I think just overall the party platform made sense to me and I felt that I could relate to it more. But I also wasn't upset when Obama was reelected. So but as I progressed through high school at that point, I became more entrenched with the Republican Party and dug my heels more into the belief system that I had first identified with during the 2012 presidential election. And I did my best to continue to educate myself on the Republican Party platform, because at that point I had a pretty good idea that my trajectory was politics, although I didn't know that much about it. But in saying that too, with the environment that I had grown up in, I wasn't completely exposed to what the Republican Party actually stands for until I had gone to college. Uh, you went to Christopher Newport College in Virginia, as you mentioned earlier, the first in your family to attend college. I think it was when you just when you got there that you went to a well, maybe it wasn't just when you got there, but you started taking internships in Washington. I worked through my first because I, I knew that I would want to intern in Washington, but I didn't come from really any family money. Uh, my parents lived paycheck to paycheck, which is completely fine. But I knew that when I went to school, I would have to work and work a lot. I remember talking to my professors and knowing that most internships in D.C. were unpaid. So I had to figure out a way to compensate for the money that I wouldn't be making. So I worked through my freshman year of college and the freshman summer and then sophomore year of college. Mid-sophomore year of college is when I began applying to internships on the Hill. And just to situate ourselves in time, fall of my sophomore year is when Donald Trump was elected president. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I remember in the book you talking about going to a Trump rally. Yes, his 100th day rally in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about that and your reaction to him. I voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And... I remember my family being really excited about the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency, but it wasn't until the rally, the 100th day rally that I went to, that I really was drawn into the movement. And I look back on that now, and I was with the man I was dating at the time, and until Donald Trump walked out on the stage and I felt, again, it's, it's difficult to explain, I don't know if you've ever been to a Trump rally, but there is an electrifying and mag magnetism to him. And there's an electrifying feeling at a Trump rally. And I remember he was walking down the catwalk to the podium and everyone just going crazy. And I was, I remember just looking around sort of like the transfixed more on the people at that time than on Donald Trump, because I was looking at all of these people that I felt I could recognize and I felt I could relate to. There are people that I grew up around and I could see how proud they were of him and that they felt that passion and that zeal towards Donald Trump. And it was really more, at that point, it was the cultural pull towards him. I, I understood that he was the president that was going to change things for people like my family. I had an internship that summer with Steve Scalise, who was then majority whip. So, you know, things lined up for me at that time and really beginning at that rally that began to catapult me into that world. Yeah, he still has that appeal to his base. I had been somebody that was 
not only in the world, but I kind of was a prime target in many ways for the initial Trump movement. But in sharing my story, I, I hope to be able to bring awareness to people who maybe were anti-Trump from the start or grew to be anti-Trump, but to help people understand that there are a lot of people who are just wildly not informed about what he actually stands for and who he actually is. And if I can help bring that conversation to life a little bit more, just to cultivate a community of understanding that we have to overcome the barriers that he has erected for us. You know, I, I just, I think that's so important when we look forward to this next election. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. You, you interviewed briefly with Ted Cruz. He does not get at a lot of admiration from you in this book, either when you interned with him or when you had to deal with him when you were working in the White House and he was trying to bust stunt to reception lines on tarmacs and so on you don't like ted cruz i have respect for elected officials regardless of party ted cruz was somebody that i found difficult to work not really even work for because i didn't work directly for him in many ways when i interned but i found him difficult to work with especially at the white house i fell in love with the house of representatives when i interned for steve scalise then when i ended up working. So I, I was, I was, I am a house person by nature too. But when you read the book, the anecdotes you tell about how he treated you when you were an intern, how he behaved when you were interacting with him as a White House aide and he was a senator, comes across as kind of a jerk. Well, I think you can tell a lot about somebody by the way they treat their staff and support staff around them. And I, that goes for, you know, I, I think anybody in any industry, how a boss is supposed to lead somebody who is at the top of a hierarchy, whether it's a private company or the Oval Office of, in the presidency, the president of the United States 
leaders are supposed to encourage their staff. They're supposed to encourage and want better for whoever is under them and better for the country if you're the president. You're not there to weaken people and to hold them under your thumb and scare them into loyalty and support for you. And I think that in my experience, I've had the blessing of working for a lot of principals, either directly or indirectly, that I I credit. They give them a lot of credit for how I view leadership today. But I've also worked for a lot of people who either had difficult personalities or who I don't believe are actual leaders. And I think that when we look at Congress today, there's a lot of people who are there to serve themselves and not be the leaders that we need during this time. This was all a question about Ted Cruz, so I'm assuming you're yes, yeah, fitting him into that category. Ted Cruz falls into the category of people who I think do not deserve positions of leadership in our country. But you were in your early 20s, and you made a lot of solid relationships, particularly, as you point out, with members of the House. You got an internship at the White House in the Office of Legislative Affairs, and you were actually thrust into doing a lot of real work in terms of relating to people on the Hill. This is one of the astonishing things about the story is how quickly you rose. Talk about that, about how you managed to form these relationships. When I interned for Steve Scalise, I primarily worked with his member services team. Member services, they are the forward-facing group of staffers that deal with directly Oftentimes yeah. with members of Congress. Cater to the ever, the individual members so that they get their needs taken care of. You have to learn a lot about the members, both personally and what their district wants and needs. So you have a lot of exposure to direct exposure to members, which I was extremely fortunate to have. But having that early experience of dealing directly with members and knowing them on a more personal level and then eventually being hired, I think it gave me a lot of different suit of strength than it would a lot of other staffers. You know, and I I can't exactly pinpoint why I rose to the place I did and the speed that I did. I I recognize a lot of it was hard work. And I did I worked very, very hard. Even through my internship, I would always I was always tried to be one of the last people to leave and the first uh staffers to get there. And working in legislative affairs too, I mean there was not many there were not many tasks that I said no to. But I made a point to try to form the relationships with members on both sides of the aisle, despite being in a hyper-partisan environment. And there were certain members that I had to work with more because they were friends of the president. You arrived in the White House as a full-time staffer at a pretty uh, fateful time because it was right before the first presidential impeachment. Yep. And that was one of the first projects that you worked on. That was the first big assignment that I had received, and I became the messenger, essentially, to House Republicans on behalf of the president and the impeachment defense team, his impeachment defense team. Yeah. I just want to point out what we're talking about here, because that was, let's see, 2019, uh, and it's 2000. So you were 23, 22, 23, 22. I turned 23 about a week before the House passed the Articles of Impeachment. What was that experience like? What was the atmosphere in the White House? And how, what would, what, did you have any exposure to the president at that time? Not one on one direct exposure, but it was my job to interface with House Republicans primarily and to track all the impeachment votes. So I, that's really when I became in constant contact with most House members, but namely the president's 
what he would, or Mr. Tomes, what he would refer to as his big defenders. Mark Meadows was one of them. Mark and I formed a very close relationship that fall. And I became, you know, Mark didn't have many relationships with staffers within the White House. He would oftentimes go directly to the president whenever he needed something. It, it was during this period where Mark really began to rely on me as the White House conduit to the Oval Office. So, you know, Mark would sometimes come meet with the president and quote unquote secretly, or Mark would help organize cabinet room meetings and he would send me lists of members that we should invite and include. So everything at that point, if the Mark couldn't get a hold of the president himself, he would oftentimes come to me. In terms of the environment, um, you know, I I felt very strongly at the time that the president shouldn't be impeached. And to a degree, I feel that way to this day. Not, you know, let's put aside what the call to Zelensky was absolutely horrendous. And I will leave it to legal scholars to determine the actual constitutional crisis that that may or may not have, have invoked. What I remember being concerned about during the first impeachment, which I think rings true today, is that a one-party impeachment brought can also be extremely divisive. And I, from my perch, I saw that happen, and I remember tracking all the dem- Democrats who may vote not to impeach him, and they he did end up taking two dem votes. But for us, that felt like a big political win. And at that point, I hadn't really hit many points of disillusionment, but I also really became blind to the effects of Trump's rhetoric, which is really damaging and dangerous. And that's when, you know, his rhetoric became very normalized to me. And I became more of the partisan, what I kind of call the partisan slinger that I'd never envisioned myself becoming when I first entered public service. One of the things that struck me about that first impeachment was in that conversation with Zelensky is you saw patterns of behavior that you saw repeat itself during that period of time that you write so intensively about around the election and after the election and him saying to Zelensky, just just say you've opened an investigation and corruption and, and we'll take care of the rest is sort of the same message he gave to the Justice Department about the election. Just say the election was corrupt. I think that I think is in some ways wildly underreported about Trump. And again, this is just my perspective, but he employs the same tactics over and over and over again. And when you really look at what he does, it's Donald Trump plays on fear and his own strength that he has concocted in his mind. And he thinks that if he can project a certain image and people will just fall in line and listen to him. And in some ways that does ring true. The thing about Donald Trump that I had a lot of blind spots to in the past that I'm very hyper aware of now is that Donald Trump has told us who he is for a very long time. He told us who he was during the 2016 presidential campaign, the 2020 presidential campaign, and he's continued to tell us who he is every single day after. And I think for people like me, again, I've had the gift of being able to look back and reflect with the hindsight that I have now, I'm able to see that. But we need to continue bringing awareness to that as well. Mark Meadows became the chief of staff. And when he became chief of staff, he tapped you to be his right-hand person. What was that like? You, you write about the discomfort that you had because all of a sudden you had authority over the people you had been serving with in the Office of Legislative Affairs, for example. How did people react to you? 
And what did it do to you at 22 or 23 years old? Because you were into everything. I mean, you were the chief of staff projected you into so much of what the White House was doing and what Trump was doing. I'll leave it to my former colleagues to answer how they viewed me. I was there to do a job. And in many ways, Mark empowered me. And I, I, I had power because I had proximity to power. I wasn't somebody that was making executive decisions. But right. I, when I took the job with Mark, and it wasn't necessarily an easy decision. I, I did spend a lot of time thinking about it, which sounds sort of silly looking back on now. But I think back to that time period, and we had gone through a tumultuous period through the fall and uh, early winter of 2020. Mark was announced as the chief of staff. We had an election coming up. There were rumblings of a massive pandemic that was about to sweep the nation. I also had been growing a little tired. You know, it was a long fall, and I had loosely began looking for jobs on Capitol Hill. So when Mark asked me to work for him, I did have to give it a lot of thought and consideration. And I told Mark that I would take the job with him ultimately if he were, if we were to come to a mutual understanding that I was taking the job with the White House chief of staff, not chief of staff Mark Meadows. I could serve Mark well. And I felt at the time that Mark needed to be the leader that the president needed, the former president needed to get through the election and to be able to combat the pandemic. And a president is only as good as the people who he is surrounded by. So if I could play any part in that and having him surrounded by good and decent people during that time, I wanted to be part of that. There are many points that I became very disillusioned during that period and my loyalties and fidelities ended up at one point, you know, it was subconscious and then I became conscious of it where it wasn't necessarily to the American people anymore. It was to Donald Trump and to Mark Meadows. You mentioned the pandemic. You write in your book a couple of things that struck me. One thing you said was business as usual often involved chaos. And another thing you wrote is, I doubt any politician could have led the country through the deadliest pandemic in 100 years without making errors of judgment and execution. But of all the people in the world, President Trump was uniquely unsuited to the challenge. He lacked empathy and was stubborn and impatient. Uh, was that part of what disillusioned you watching him through that pandemic? And what was it that made him more specifically, what, what was it that made him uniquely unsuited? It wasn't lost on me or many of my colleagues that he is not an empathetic person, that Donald Trump likes to prefer an image of strength and that he is undeterred by challenge. You, you, you mentioned at some point that uh, going to, I think, Texas or Louisiana after uh, a natural disaster and how struck you were by his lack of interest in the people who are actually affected by that. If we're looking from a bird's eye view, I touched on my perception of leadership earlier, but when we look at Donald Trump, and he has many, many character flaws, again, many of which I was blind to, and I, I want to call attention to now, and I think that's important to continue doing for all of us. But he is not somebody that leads with strength. He leads with fear and weakness and fear-mongering in the people that support him. So whether we look at the pandemic in 2020 or the summer of civil unrest after George Floyd was murdered, Donald Trump didn't lead us through those moments. He, he wanted to protect his own image and preserve his own image of strength. So when we think about 
how all those events colossed into the 2020 presidential election, how he was unwilling to give up his position as the president to a fair and free election that the American, where the American people did elect Joe Biden. Things, at least for me, fell into place and everything began to make sense, especially afterwards too. And, you know, I just sort of tie this up and I'm, I'm, if you have, I don't know if you have a follow-up question to it, but Donald Trump isn't the leader that we needed then, and he's not the leader that we need now moving forward. We I, There are many policies that I don't agree with in the Biden administration, and I think that every president is subjected to making errors of judgment. Donald Trump, that's not a unique concept to Donald Trump just because he's supremely unempathetic and he's not a leader. There, it's impossible for any president to never make a single mistake. A, a single mistake. I personally think that the Biden administration has made a lot of policy mistakes. There are a lot of policies that they have passed that I don't agree with. But what Joe Biden and President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have done is restore hope in leadership for our country. If we want to continue being a constitutional republic and maintain our democratic institutions, we can, as a nation, survive four years, eight years, 12 years of policy that we don't all agree with. But we can't survive through another presidency of a leader who has shown more fidelity to authoritarian rule than to our own rule of law. There was a day in which uh, Bill Barr, the uh, attorney general, said that uh, he could find no evidence of massive fraud in the election. And the president was outraged by this because Barr wasn't backing up his story. And you heard some sort of calamitous thing going on in the president's dining room, which is right off the Oval Office. I'm pretty familiar with the, the terrain there. Uh, I had the office next to that office, ne- next to that dining room. And you went in there and he had thrown a plate of food against the wall. That wasn't entirely unprecedented. I mean, there were many times throughout my tenure working in the West Wing that his volcanic temper would get the best of him and he would you know, either flip the tablecloth or swipe everything off the table or chuck a lunch dish. So that wasn't something that was completely out of the ordinary for me at the time. I, I now see that as what it is. That's a man with an extremely volcanic and irrational temper. I got to ask you about this because you wrote, even Trump's tantrums hadn't made me angry whenever I witnessed or heard him losing his temper. It hurt me to see him upset. My first thought was, why had people let it go so far? Couldn't we have done more? Couldn't I have done more to serve him better? to avoid upsetting him. And I actually found myself thinking back to the beginning of the book and your dad. And not that you said you don't want to delve into psychobabble, but hey, it's my podcast, so I can. But it, it strikes me that you've ha- you had to uh, accommodate a guy who was a power person in your life, early in your life, who had these episodes of temper that boiled over. And I'm wondering whether... That had something to do with your inclination to want to try and make it better. I felt, and in many ways I still do, although now I understand the other side of it too, that it was our job to gatekeep to the president to make sure that he was getting accurate information that could help him carry out the job of the presidency better. So I felt that if when he had moments like that, it was because we weren't doing our jobs. We were the people who were ultimately causing that. And then now I see that different with hindsight. And I realize and very distinctly recognize that there should, 
somebody with a temper like that should never be anywhere near our nation's most coveted national security secrets is not a leader on the global stage and is not a leader to the American people. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Even as you were witnessing everything you witnessed in the White House, including what happened on January 6th, some of the stuff that happened leading up to January 6th, you clearly were disturbed by it. You were trying to uh, intervene with Meadows on some of this stuff. Uh, And yet, at the same time, you were packing your things and planning to go down to Mar-a-Lago and serve the president when he left office. And explain that. I mean, what, why, why, why did you want to subject yourself to more of that? There are really two reasons that I made the choice to still move down to Florida. And again, I'm not proud of them, but it's part of my history. The first was is that, and it's relevant. I think today also looking forward to 2024 is there's this notion that you are, you owe the administration complete fidelity and loyalty. So I was putting a target on my back theoretically by being very outspoken about what happened on January 6th. But I felt that if I backed out of moving to Florida with him, I would also be seen as disloyal. But the second reason this was the more prominent reason was that I had begun to process everything that had happened since the 2020 presidential election. And I had seen the characters that had come into the White House, characters like Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Flynn, and how dangerous they were and how influential they were on the planning and occurrence of the rally on January 6th and the ransacking of the Capitol. So I felt that if the president still, or the former president, soon to be former president, still needed sound and capable minds around him, I felt that he still would be a stronghold in Republican politics. And in order to prevent something like that happening again, or if there could be people down there to help police the people around him, I felt that I could still fulfill that role well. Was that realistic? Looking back now, no, absolutely not. But I I still had that mindset Mm -hmm. where he, I I, I could help be that gatekeeper. I could help be that person. And I had, you have to think too, I had a lot of close relationships with members of Congress still. Kevin McCarthy was one of them, by the way. He was a good friend of yours. Talk about him and your relationship with him. A lot of these relationships, by the way, in the book, it's very noteworthy that there are many, many relationships where you say, and that was the last time I ever spoke with them. There are a lot of relationships that you had that you lost or that you walked away from as a result of all the things that you experienced. Yeah. I had a lot of close relationships with members of Congress. Kevin McCarthy was one of them. He was very close to the administration, the president. 
not so close with Mark Meadows. I sort of became the conduit mm-hmm. between those three men, McCarthy, mm-hmm. Trump, and Meadows. You know, what I'll say about McCarthy, and this rings true about a lot of Republicans, but McCarthy on January 6th made, I think, an excellent floor speech about how the president, uh, Mr. Trump was responsible for what happened on January 6th and how the Republican Party needed to move away from that. We needed to be better than what happened on that day. But then a few weeks later, Kevin McCarthy was down at Mar-a-Lago because that was politically advantageous to him. And there were a lot of a lot of Republicans who had an opportunity to do the right thing, to stand up for the Constitution. And they didn't and they aren't. And I think that's, one, been extremely disappointing to witness and these people that I revered as leaders in my very early career. But also now to look back and realize that the Republican Party isn't the revered party that I wanted to be a part of. Um, you know, David, I think, too, like when we look at this next presidential election, as important as it is to make sure that Donald Trump never gets near the Oval Office ever again, we also need to think about Congress. January 6th happened because of Donald Trump's actions. January 6th wasn't worse because there were still good and decent people in our government that were willing to do the right thing, to willing willing to uphold their oath of office and certify the results of the election. If we elect another Republican majority to Congress and the election is tossed to Congress, there's a very good chance that Trump's supporters in Congress are going to continue to cry fraud and throw the election to him. Just based on what you saw, you mentioned before the people who were surrounding Trump at the end of that saga in 2020 and into early 2021. What would the White House look like if he were returned? Donald Trump demands complete loyalty and fidelity. And he, in his first term, had people surrounding him who knew the government and I do believe kept the guardrails up. The guardrails are completely down now. They were completely down after the two that almost completely down after the after the 2020 presidential election and through January 6th. Donald Trump has learned from his mistakes. If reports are accurate, Donald Trump and his supporters are currently working to build a database where they're intensely vetting people to work in the administration for complete fidelity and loyalty to Donald Trump. Some of those people will end up working in very powerful positions, but he's also looked and he discussed this at the end of his first term. He's also looked at implementing a Schedule F, which essentially would, to my understanding, he would be able to fire tens of thousands of civil servants. Mm -hmm. That is an undemocratic concept by nature. He also has shown us that he values authoritarian rule over a rule of law. He has shown us that he is willing to completely reject the rulings of the courts and that he, this happened in 2020, he wanted to deploy the military to seize voting machines, which means that he would weaponize the military to his own benefit and to his own strength. That is not what a leader, the leader of the free world, is meant to do, especially under our Constitution. I wasn't somebody that was making decisions in meetings, Mm -hmm. but I was privy to a lot of information. I spent a lot of time with Mark Meadows and the principals surrounding the former president at the time. And I, I, you need to look back no further to almost exactly three years ago today, the infamous December 18th meeting where the former president had Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, Patrick Byrne in the Oval Office, and he was prepared to invoke invoke the Insurrection Act to seize voting machines. He showed that he was willing to do it then, and he's showed since then 
he's told us since then that he's willing to do that again, and we need to believe him. By the way, that meeting, you had to go and find Mark Meadows. He was not, he went home. He was not on campus. I had to get him back to the White House. The impression that you get from your depiction is that he was sort of in the fetal position for a lot of that last couple of months. He was sort of distracted. From my observations, I don't know if it it was that he was distracted and disconnected and didn't care or that he was so overwhelmed with everything that was going on that he in some way shut down. But I, you know, I also don't think that I do a disservice by Marquis. In some ways, he he had one of the hardest jobs in the country. I, I, I don't want that to be lost on history as well. He was the chief of staff during an extremely tumultuous period. Do I disagree with some of the leadership decisions that he made? Absolutely. One, one of the things that you report in your book, and I think it's been well covered, is that Meadows spent a lot of time uh, burning documents in his office during those last uh, months. Uh, you also report that he, he, he left the White House with this binder that's now become famous about the hurricane uh, crossfires or crossfire hurricane uh, investigation, which was the Russia investigation, which Trump wanted to release because he thought it was uh, damning of the process. But it had a lot of very highly confidential classified information. Um, I don't expect that you can answer this question because it's still a matter of legal but what the heck was that? What what happened with that? There were binders flying all over the place. You had to retrieve them. You report in the book from reporters who... Uh, I didn't pre- have to retrieve them. Mark, Mark Meadows sent, sent, a a, service sent out a secret service agents to, to get them back. What is the import of all of that? And do you have any idea where these, the, the missing, the, these have now been reported missing by the archives, where, the, where they might be? I don't have much more to expand on beyond what I've testified to. Mm-hmm. That said, the Trump administration has been publicly known for a while and also in my experience and observations to be extremely frivolous and careless with our nation's most sensitive national security secrets. Yes. Well, he's indicted for it now. So Correct. And so when we, again, when we look at this next election, we need to think about the people who would theoretically be back in power. To answer your second part of the question, short answer, no, I, I, I'm not going to speculate about where those binders mm-hmm. might be. I, okay. I have faith in Jack Smith and his investigators, though, that if it's a pertinent issue to the Justice Department, I have faith in our institutions and in his team that they'll get to the bottom of it. One of the things that was really gripping in your book was what you went through after you left the White House, and it became clear that you would be subpoenaed by the, by the House probably by others, uh, and you had no legal representation and no money. And uh, ultimately, at least for a time, the only legal representation you could get was from lawyers who were associated with Trump. That's correct. And it was, you have a line in there saying, I was back in the family, and, you, and, you, and family is capitalized. It has almost a, a, a kind of mob uh, sense to it. That must have been extraordinarily difficult, that period, for a young woman who sort of thrown on the waters as you were. Yes, you know, I that was my first time ever needing an attorney. And I, for a while, went to January 6th 
committee was formed, I, I felt that if I was ever asked either under subpoena or voluntarily to provide information, I wanted to be forthcoming about what I knew. I did end up with Trump appointed counsel. I sought Trump appointed counsel because I wasn't able to afford my own independent counsel. And at the time I was grateful that they were willing to help find me representation. Although I did know, at least in my view, that it's also seen as currency in Trump world. I, I take a free attorney and I'm, in my view, accepted or expected to continue being loyal. To toe the line, yeah. I wasn't fully aware or couldn't envision the place that we ended up in when the committee began its public hearings and even afterwards, too, that there were so many that so many of my superiors would hide under the guise of executive privilege and that wouldn't come forward with the information that they knew. You know, I had sort of an idea of that, but I thought when push came to shove, they would step up and fulfill the leadership roles as the public servants that they signed up to do and they swore the oath to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States. So I personally reached a point, you know, there are a few pages of my public or my transcripts publicized in April of 2022 after I had interviewed with the committee twice. But I read through my transcripts, and again, I, at the time, was an expert compartmentalizer. And I had compartmentalized the fact that I hadn't been fully forthcoming and provided the committee with all the information that I knew. So I had this moment where I, you know, I was reading through my transcripts, and I saw in that moment that I had become, over years, that I had become the person that I never wanted to become. You know, I took a job in the government because I believe in our institutions and I believe in our founding documents and I believe in America, but I was part of an operation that was protecting the principal Donald Trump and not the principles that we signed up to serve. So I called a Republican member of Congress that I was close to and I'm close to to this day. And he implored me in that conversation to go look in the mirror, which I thought was sort of hokey at the time. But I did. I went and looked in my apartment mirror and I was crying at the time. And he asked if I liked what I was looking at. And he made a point. He was like, I don't, I don't mean your appearance. I mean, do you like the person that you're look, that's looking back at you? Because you, Cassidy, are the only person that has to live with yourself for the rest of your life. If you can live for, with yourself for the rest of your life, knowing that you feel that you've made mistakes, that's fine. You, you don't carry on. But if you want to try to change who you are and who the person that you have seen yourself become, there still is time. You don't have a lot of time, but you have to work to correct your wrongs now. And I look back on that, and it again, it seems like it's sort of a silly and minor moment, but for me, it was this no, profound realization that I did have a second chance. And I, I, so I, everything, you know, everything I've done throughout this entire journey from that and then I ended up back channeling to the committee for a third interview, ultimately switching legal counsel to a firm I was extremely fortunate. Because we should point out the lawyers, the lawyers that the Trump folks sent you, I think Stefan Pasatino uh, said, just say you don't remember. Just say you don't remember. And clearly, I mean, you came to recognize that he was there to protect the enterprise. You know, that's how, uh, I, that's how I felt. And he, you know, it's, it's encouraged in Trump world. And I had his counsel too, but say you don't recall, the committee doesn't know what you can and can't recall. But I would do want to point out that Stefan specifically told me that he doesn't want me to lie and to perjure myself. So I had mixed signals. I I felt, and I, and this, again, this is my first time ever needing counsel. 
But all of that said, you know, I also made mistakes. I take responsibility for the mistakes that I made. And I was fortunate to end up joining with legal counsel pro bono who actually were able to represent my interests and what I wanted to do with the committee, which was to be completely forthcoming with the committee. And at that point, when I had made that decision to switch legal counsel, that was the end of my time in Trump world. But that's also when I began what I call like my life on the outside. Now he's running again. This must have created tremendous, I mean, you put yourself at risk. And how has that changed your life? And how has that complicated your life? Because you didn't ask to be, or you didn't begin this career in public life, essentially becoming one of the most famous whistleblowers against one of the most powerful men in the country and with a passionate following. I mean, how hard has that been? The violence and threats that were unleashed on me aren't unique to my situation. So, you know, as much as my life did change, and I was aware that my life would change. And I was, you know, I, I don't say this with pride, but I, I was on the inside. I, I, I know how I could sort of predict how the messaging was going to unravel because I had been part of that. But all of that said, the president of the United States, the former president of the United States or the current or somebody who is running for president of the United States is running for that office to protect not only our institutions of government, but to protect the American people. So just the sheer fact that Donald Trump is so such a weak-minded person that he feels the need to unleash violence on the American people just so he can, in his own pursuit of power and for his own wounded ego. As you point out, you're 27. You've had all of these experiences. You're clearly very capable or you wouldn't have gotten to where you, 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 you got. What do you do now? No one can see the rest of their lives completely, but what is it that you want to do next? I think that we're entering, especially as we go to 2024, we're entering such a critical period in our nation's history. And I, I, I personally believe it's imperative that people like me who have the benefit of having served Donald Trump and using that as a, benef- as a beneficial way to continue sounding the alarm and warning the American people as we enter this next election, about what the stakes are. So, you know, I I am a planner. I would love to have a five-year plan or even a three-year plan. But right (laughs) now I sort of have this loose one-year plan that I am open to opportunities that come my way, but I think it's extremely important and honestly an extension of my public service to continue talking about this issue to make sure that Donald Trump never gets near the Oval Office again. But I think that every American owes our country and our history and our future generations the benefit of ensuring that our nation has a chance to survive. And if I can play any part in that, you know, I, I think that I'll, I'll have done my job. Well, Cassidy, they also owe you a debt of gratitude for doing what you've done, which was not easy and continues to be not easy. History will look back on you as someone who did their duty to the country at a critical time. So thank you for that. Thank you for this time. And I I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you, Dave. And thank you for having me on. I'm really fortunate for the opportunity to talk to your listeners. So we're all in this together. (laughs) Yes, we are. Thank you so much. As we take a break, I want to thank the team that makes the Axe Files possible. 
Executive Producer and Research Director Miriam Annenberg, Producer Hannah McDonald, Engineer Extraordinaire Jeff Fox, and Staff Director Saralina Berry, and her predecessor, Allison Siegel. I also want to thank our friends at CNN Audio for all of their assistance, and of course, my colleagues at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. Most of all, I want to thank you for listening. I always look forward to these conversations, and I'm gratified that so many of you have told me that you enjoy them too. Very happy holidays to you and yours, and we'll see you in 24. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.